journaling and talk therapy are not cutting it. And I remember I told people, I feel like I need to do something with my whole body. You know, so just intuitively knowing that what is required in trauma intervention is a whole body intervention. And I didn't quite, I was stumbling around. I was like, something with my hands, something with my body. I feel like my cells need some kind of intervention that just doesn't happen with talk therapy. So that's what was missing. Like I said, they were very nice, um, but they, uh, they offered Rogerian, humanistic, supportive counseling and not traumatic grief therapy. Hello and welcome. My name is Liz Gleason and you're listening to Shapes of Grief. Shapes of Grief is a curation of stories from international guests who share their unique experience of grief. These stories are shared with the wish that you, the listener, may find some comfort, hope and solidarity and maybe also the realization that you're not alone in your grief. Each time you listen, please do support the podcast by donating on the website shapesofgrief.com or by becoming a patron on patreon.com. It's a privilege to hold these conversations and I extend my deepest gratitude to all my guests for showing up in this particular way. It truly is a gift. Welcome to this week's episode of Shapes of Grief. It's Liz here, and my guest today hails from Baltimore in the USA. And let's see now that she is so qualified, it's going to take me a few minutes to introduce her. But Nayasha is owner and operator of a boutique grief therapy practice in Baltimore called Wisdom Counseling. And it is primarily for, it is exclusively for Black people in the Baltimore area. She is also a full-time professor and the Henry S. Delaney Professor and Associate Professor of Psychology and Africana Studies from in Goucher College, Baltimore. So Nayasha, you are so welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Liz. I love your podcast. You are really sacrificing yourself to be here today. It is 6 a.m. in Nayasha's household. Um, she's kindly accommodating uh, the, the time zone for me, I guess. So thank you for that. And we have our fingers crossed that the child who was sleeping, the dog who was calm for now, and the <laughs> husband who's about to go to work won't all come in. And... That's right. That's right. That's it. <laughs> These are, the, these are the things you have to think about with, uh, you know, these podcast interviews and trying to figure out how do we pretend that we haven't got a whole life going on behind That's us. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. And but we, our fingers are crossed and we're claiming calm thoughts. Yes. So I suppose to anybody watching this on YouTube, you know, don't be fooled by the calm backgrounds. That's right. We're, we're both juggling households of pets and partners and children and what have you and at any moment you may realize that okay <laughs> but we'll deal with them if they if they want that's right mm-hmm. yeah so Nayasha first to go a little bit to your background are you born and bred in Baltimore I am not so first I want to correct the pronunciation of my name it's Nayasha I'm sorry Niyasha. which actually is one pronunciation 
the ones that my parents decided on. And I was in graduate school and had a student in my class from Zimbabwe who promptly corrected me that the correct pronunciation of my name is actually Enyasha. So I'd gone on for uh, 30 years thinking that the correct pronunciation was Niasha and I was told it was Enyasha, but we say Niasha. Um, I'm not born and bred in Baltimore. I'm a proud transplant to Charm City. I'm originally from Bronx, New York. So Niasha, and apologies, I should have double checked. I was pronouncing your name correctly before we started. Mm -hmm. um, most of us who are working with grief um, have a background mm -hmm. in some sort of loss, mm -hmm. consciously or unconsciously. But in your case, there was there was a very much a conscious loss there that brought you into working and supporting other bereaved people. And yeah. you said to me before we started recording that your practice does exclusively support those who are bereaved by death yes. and not grief as such. Right. So would you tell us what happened? I will. So I'm now 10 plus years into my traumatic grief journey. Um, shortly after getting married and relocating to Baltimore, my husband and I quickly got pregnant. We didn't know that it would happen so quickly. Excited, as you could imagine. And doubly excited when we learned that we were pregnant with identical twins. Yeah, so, um, you know, the pregnancy for the most, I mean, it was considered a high-risk pregnancy my first time as a mother and not having a reference point for what that really meant in my family, either my immediate family or my extended family. I didn't quite understand um, the full risk. I just knew that I, I needed to see the doctor a lot. I needed to be closely monitored. They talked about being on the lookout for something called twin-to-twin -twin transfusion. I didn't quite understand what that meant. And I think that they also did not want to over alarm me and stress me during the pregnancy. And at 29 and a half weeks during a routine multi-week checkup, because I had to be seen multiple times a week um, at Hopkins, they were, you know, conducting an ultrasound and they got a little concerned about the heartbeats. Um, and then it, it's, it's all a blur. It all happens so quickly where they say, okay, we're going to deliver the babies. And it seems like medical personnel, my recollection of it is that medical personnel literally popped up from the floor of the hospital out of closets. They came from everywhere so quickly. Um, and it was very rushed. And so I needed to call my husband who was working at Howard University in, in DC at the time and, and tell him to come, they're going to deliver the babies. I was pretty calm. I called my parents in New York. I think they were most anxious because they probably had the best sense actually of how high risk um, all of this was. And I was um, given the epidural and I remember that the um, epidural didn't quite take 
And so when they started, you know, so then you're also then dealing after the effects trauma to the body. Were they doing um, a cesarean section on you? They were doing a cesarean section, right? And so they then gave, you know, they had to give a higher dose. The babies were delivered both alive um, and they were in the neonatal intensive care unit um, in separate wings. At that time, Hopkins had not built its children's hospital. It now has a very elaborate freestanding children's hospital that wasn't in existence um, in 2010. And so the boys were in two separate areas of the NICU and um, Isaiah, who is the baby who ultimately transitioned, was in his area for three and a half weeks before I walked in and he was in crisis at the time that I walked in. So I, I would go in and be with the boys all day, every day. I received special leave from my job to do that, which in itself was its own kind of blessing that I was granted that kind of special leave. So I would go and just just to pause you there, Niasha. Mm -hmm. Isaiah was born and his brother. What's his brother's name? His brother is Caleb. Caleb. Mm -hmm. So Isaiah and Caleb were brought at 29 weeks. 29 and a half weeks. Up to NICU. Mm -hmm. And were both stable for some time? Um, I think they were always, I would say they were always in crisis. Both okay. were always, um, I mean, they were in the NICU. So that's yeah. neonatal intensive care. So you're, yeah, yeah. Well, you um, back at work. No, I was on leave. Okay. So, Sorry. right. Okay. My job granted a special leave for the semester. Um, knowing in, that in I, in Ireland, we would get six months maternity leave plus another automatic. kind of three or four you know it's completely different to the states yes like the states it's inhuman if i may say so no i agree what young mothers are expected to do i agree so so you 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 should have been back at work at some stage but you were given extra leave because of the boy's condition right i was given a, a full sabbatical uh semester sabbatical off and then just by virtue of the timing and my job as a professor, I had an additional three months from the summer. Okay. Um, so I ended up having six months, but that's really interesting to hear that six months maternity is standard. And then on top of that, yeah. you would have received leave for bereavement. Yeah, well, yeah, we would have like, it's my youngest now, and I have identical twin boys. Oh, wow. Niasha. So when you, you mentioned that, I could really feel that in my body. Mm -hmm. um, my youngest are 11. So um, we, yeah, six months as standard is like the minimum. Mm -hmm. And then you can take, I think, another extra three months unpaid parental leave. Mm -hmm. And we don't yet have bereavement leave as standard mm -hmm. but many organizations will give it you know uh -huh. they will they will give paid bereavement leave but it's up to the organization to decide that oh, interesting. much better than the states yeah. much better ours was the leave at half pay and so even then even with the appreciation of the leave you can imagine it was a financial struggle yeah
Yeah. So, so I um, you were going in and yeah, so I was in crisis. Right, going in for my typical daily visit. And this this day when I went in, it's interesting because this day that I went in was different from the other days. I I took longer to get ready. Um, I remember I was very meticulous about preparing myself to go in um, and the jewelry that I was wearing. And I got there around 11 a.m. Typically, I was there by 8 a.m. before rounds. And I got there 11 a.m. And I always went to Isaiah's room first because he seemed more fragile to me. Again, not having all of the details about what it means to have premature babies. He was smaller. And, uh, you know, so I just always went to see him first. Caleb, I refer to as my little butternut. And he just always seemed a little healthier and more stable. So I always started in Isaiah's room. I'd spend time there and then I'd go to the room where Caleb was. Um, and this day I went in and um, Isaiah was in, in crisis. And then from there, it was a, let's see, I would say a 16 hour uh, harrowing experience until his ultimate transition around 3.58 in the morning the following day. So they tried to save his life for 16 hours? They were trying a lot of different life-saving interventions. Mm. Um, ultimately, he perished from a condition known as necrotizing enterocolitis. Um, in medical field, they just abbreviated as NEC. Um, and so they tried different things. Um, just initially, I think, hoping that it was more of what they would call like free gas that was floating around that they could contain and then maybe um, opening up to see if there was surgical intervention that would help and ultimately deciding that there wasn't. Hi everyone, excuse this brief interruption. It's Liz here and I wanted to tell you about my grief training program. If you are interested in becoming grief literate or grief trained, I've designed a comprehensive online program which you can do at your own pace in your own time. It's been designed primarily for healthcare providers, but we all have a right to grief training and education. So if you're interested, then it's for you too. Sign up today at shapesagrief.com. Now, back to the podcast. So we called the chaplain. Um... I called my parents, I called my brother and sister in love, and um, we all prayed together. Um, and then they removed all life saving interventions, and we were able to be with Isaiah in that dreadful family room where they take families to give them bad news. And we were able to be with him for as long as we wanted. And they had um, an oxygen manual pump until uh, we said it was okay to remove it. 
Yeah, I feel the lump in my throat. It's a hard story to tell. I'm I'm much further along. I can tell that story now mm. without falling to pieces, but it's still a hard story. Absolutely. And I don't know if you're if it's in the States this week as well, but it's baby loss awareness week. It was, Here. yeah. Friday was the yeah, the culminating day for baby loss awareness week. And we lit a candle in remembrance along with people all across the world. Mm. You said there that dreadful family room. Mm. And I just want to ask you about that because it's, I, from what I hear, when a baby dies, no matter how much compassion there is or kindness, because we're so sensitive at that time, the rooms matter, the heat mm -hmm. matters, the way someone looks at us matters, mm -hmm. the kind words matter, mm -hmm. the dismissive words matter. Mm -hmm. And I'm just hearing something about the room that wasn't working for you. And a lot of people listening to my podcast are working in hospitals and are professionals. Would you tell us for a moment what was I can, for those of you who can't see me, Asha, your mm. face is grimacing as you're. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that room. Um, it's a fine room. I mean, it looks kind of like a typical therapy office room. I won't actually, I won't say a typical therapy office room. It looks like a very bare therapy office room. The rooms they put the trainees in. <laughs> when we're in graduate school, you know, your basic chairs and a desk. It's the room that I occupied every day when I went to visit the boys. So they would let me be in there so long as they didn't have to bring another family into the dreaded room. And then I had to vacate the room. So I already had that association. I knew when I needed to leave the room that a family was coming in to receive very bad news. And now I was that family. Um, the colors were mauve, you know, so not particularly warm. Um, like you said, the chairs were kind of that, um, um, they were upholstered mauve color with beechwood handles. Um, and it's just, uh, it's small. It's a small space. And so also what I remember about that time was that um, they had us waiting in the room while they attempted, you know, uh, the last intervention or the last look. And I remember they, uh, a pediatric surgeon who came in to consult, uh, I remember him requesting to the nurses to remove the mother from the NICU to, and bring her to the, the room while he consults. I don't want her here while I'm consulting, basically. And so when they came back in, I don't know how much time passed. It wasn't much time before they realized they weren't going to be able to do anything. But I, what I remember about the room also is it's very tight. And basically, like all the, the medical personnel were squeezed into the room into the doorway to tell us that they weren't going to be able to do anything and I remember his nurse his NICU nurse she was bawling um she had probably minded Isaiah mm -hmm, she did 
Yeah. Yeah. Multiple times. And the, the, you know, the nurses shift. And so you don't always have the same nurse, but she was one of his main nurses. So she had developed an attachment and, um, yeah, the, uh, it's just, uh, it's, it's in the space where the trauma is happening. I think that's one reason why it's dreadful. And then I remember fast forward because Caleb still had to remain in the, the NICU until term, basically two and a half months. He was not out of the woods and we did have a scare with him as well. And when it became time to um, have him discharged, and I remember they wanted to discharge him to what's considered a lower level NICU first before they discharge us home. And I just lost it and I said we're not going to another hospital when we leave here we're leaving with this baby and we're not coming back and we're not going to another hospital and uh they saw I meant business they were like you know because that all is about and I'm not even sure if I'm speaking coherently now of you know because all the memories are coming back but that was very much about insurance and insurance coverage and our insurance provider had an office on the NICU wing and they were very much involved in their care and what interventions they thought that they did and did not need and what they thought they should and should not cover in the way of Hopkins treatment. Hopkins is one of two level four NICUs, which is the highest level in the state, the other being the University of Maryland Medical Center. And so it was very much the insurance company who felt that Caleb was stable enough, well enough to go to a lower level. This is shocking. Yeah. And it was a real education for the medical residents. They didn't realize this. But the conflict of interest here. Yeah. What's the cheapest care as opposed to Oh my God, I'm just, I've never heard of that before. Right. And this is where I think my training as a critical psychologist, which we, you know, will probably get into because it feeds into the clinical work that I do. Um, this is where that training came in and my advocacy and fighting for the best care that I thought my child needed came into play because I knew what that was about. I knew that was about insurance, about insurance trying to cut what they consider loss for coverage. And Hopkins is the highest level. It's more expensive. I said, we are not moving this child anywhere until this child is ready to go home. Caleb will go from here to home. That is shocking. I'm shocked by that. Yeah. So another part about the dreadful room, I'm sorry, just thinking, finishing through this thought is that the night before we were preparing to take Caleb home, they make the family stay overnight in the hospital with the baby in a room and make sure that they are able to tend to the baby, wash the baby, et cetera. It was the dreadful room where we had to do that. And when I asked if they had another room where we could spend the night with our baby that we're about to take home, they said, well, the other room would be on the maternity unit where mothers are all have, so. 
So we opted for the dreadful room. Well, you had no option really, did you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gosh, I'm just struck by the insurance thing that's still rattling around in my head. And you in your trauma needing to fight to get the best care for your baby. And I imagine there's voices that go, is this actually the right decision for my child? Or is this the cheapest decision for my child? Right. And that you have to question authority. Whereas most of us like to think we could just lean back into the medical profession and the care and trust that they have our baby's best interest at heart. Yeah. Um, And I'm not saying the insurers, you, you know, they're in the business of making money. Yeah. Oh, they were. Yeah. Their, their representative came in on, on a round and a consultation around Caleb. I remember that. And I remember us, I remember us battling and again, the residents, the medical fellows, gobstop. This was a whole new part of their medical education. They had no idea that as medical doctors, they were actually not in control. And they shared that with me that, I mean, they, they had no idea. And they shared being shocked that this was going to be part of what they had to contend with as medical professionals who, similar to therapists, they go into this to help people, yeah, not to be brokers for insurance companies and certainly not to have insurance companies dictate to them what best quality of care looks like. Yeah. These are the dark recesses of our capitalist society. Mm-hmm. Aren't they? And you think in a maternity hospital, you'd be safe from that. But I'm yeah. sorry, that wasn't your experience. Yeah. So, Niasha, to bring one baby home from the hospital instead of two must have been beyond devastating for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And I thank God I'm a very resourceful person and that I have an amazing support network that really uh, protected me and covered me and took care of me during that time. Um, and we're in Baltimore, Maryland, where neither my husband nor nor myself have any family. Yeah. Uh, we have some friends, but no family. Um, so I had aunties traveling up from North Carolina to stay with me days. I had co-workers um, stay with me, uh, co-workers in my psychology department. Um, giving me uh, grocery food cards and helping out. And mind you, I'm, I am a brand new member of the faculty at this point. They don't really even know me. This is the first year. All of this change, new marriage, new city, new job, new babies, traumatic grief, figure it out. It was very difficult. And I saw this kind of uh, kind of sets the stage a little bit of my practice that I have now. I saw two grief counselors um, within maybe the first few months, and they were both lovely people who now in hindsight, I realized just were not educated on traumatic grief and loss. 
which requires an understanding both of grief and the, you know, the journey of grief, if we can call them a prototypical journey, not stages, but prototypical journey, married with a really deep, rich understanding of trauma. Yeah. And you and need a new baby on top of that also. And a new baby that I need to be present for. Emotions of, I love Caleb. I'm so delighted to have him. This is such a joy, but a visual reminder every hour of every day of what you've lost. And I absolutely, absolutely. Could you speak a little bit about that, Niasha, what it's like to be the mom of twins where one baby survives and one baby dies? Uh, well, you focus on, well, I won't say you, I focused on um, uh, the, the person here. Oh, I thank God for Caleb. Caleb helped to keep me here. I, I wanted to check out and felt I could not. I just could not because Caleb was here. You felt suicidal. Oh, I definitely had thoughts about that. Thoughts about death. So as you know, we better understand even suicidal ideation, not really dying by suicide, but just checking out either death, that, that, that feeling that people or thought that people have, they say, I would be fine if I went to sleep and I just didn't wake up. Mm-hmm. And if not that, I absolutely, and I would describe this to my friends, how I felt. I felt like just completely dropping out of society. Like if you could envision a really swanky cave, because I still like my creature comforts, that allowed people to come visit me, but I was not coming out of the cave. So you could come down and visit me, but I was going to take up residence in this cave now for the rest of my life. I'll have my little velvet couch. It'll have a desk. And I'm just going to be a cave dweller, an underground cave dweller. That was my fantasy. That was what I wished I could do more even than, yes, just drop out of society. And I said to my friends, off you go, off I go, off I go. But I couldn't because I had Caleb. Um, And so I poured into Caleb. Uh, those first few years, I actually ended up hiring former students who I really trusted, who were recent graduates to nanny at the house. And so I had three amazing nannies for Caleb's first, uh, you know, two and a half years. While you went back to school. While I went back to school and tried to reclaim my sanity. Um, I, because regardless, regardless of how hard you try, I just think there's no way that your parenting is not going to be impaired in terms of your emotional availability. And so I just, I had enough wherewithal to know that I, I needed to call in all of the backups to help me do this. And I was gonna call all of them in, and I did. And you're also going back to a relatively new job, like you said, mm-hmm. where you're needing to prove yourself to your colleagues and um, right. 
but yet here you are not the same not the same person who applied for the job that's right and not the same person who was given the job right that's so right like how do I hold this now right that's right so how did your grief you know how did it change or how did you adapt to it over time you know you talked about the trauma piece you talked about going to to see and I hear this all the time too very nice counsellors um very nice but untrained and uneducated and you know as I say to people people having a normal adaptive response to grief tend to not look for therapy it's the people who've had a shock or a trauma um that tend to look for therapy for their grief because most people can manage grief right research shows us that so the, the people who are looking for bereavement support are the ones who do need extra intervention, right. generally because there's been a shock or a trauma or a bereavement overload. So nice just doesn't cut it. Not at all. What was Not missing? at all. What was missing? What was missing was, I realize now, the, the somatic interventions. Um, and again, this is, so this is 2010, and I think we've even come such a long way in that time period. I, I'm a trained therapist and counseling psychologist, and I didn't quite understand trauma treatment and how it needs to be different from traditional talk therapy. But I knew in the midst of that traumatic grief experience in the acute stage, I felt, I, I would tell people, I feel as though my being has changed on a cellular level and journaling and talk therapy are not cutting it. And I remember I told people, I feel like I need to do something with my whole body, you you know? So just intuitively knowing that what is required in trauma intervention is a whole body intervention and I didn't quite I was stumbling around I was like something with my hands something with my body I feel like my cells need some kind of intervention that just doesn't happen with talk therapy so that's what was missing I said they were very nice um but they uh they offered uh Rogerian humanistic supportive counseling and not traumatic grief therapy so um so so the next question what did work then traumatic grief therapy what did that actually look like in practice for you Niasha yeah I think it looked like the elements that I've pulled together in my own practice now in working with people, it, it did look like that whole body intervention. So it looked like um, going to a place called Clayworks here and making ceramic, uh, uh, you know, pottery pieces with my hands, doing things with my hands. It involved a lot of time in nature, walking, observing, um, in various natural landscapes. Um, it involved uh, cognitive spiritual interventions coming out of my Black church tradition, sermons, 
and gospels, specifically sermons that tapped into the the suffering, the the difficulties of life, which you don't typically get when you go to church, but you can curate that experience because a lot of our churches either broadcast their sermons or allow you to purchase the sermons. And so I curated um, a sermonic library that really spoke to the depth of pain that's included in the human experience that you're not going to get in the typical Sunday yeah. church. And, and so I, I gave myself that kind of cognitive spiritual intervention. So you, you, built, you built it, you spoke it, you found the passages and you developed it. Yes. And um, mm-hmm. so you, you don't have to be a, a I don't know, what, the, what church do you belong to, Niasha? Um, I belong to an African Methodist Episcopalian church. So we call that the AME church. And do you have a leader in your church? There's a leader in the church, but actually most of the sermons that I ended up curating for this library came from a church in Chicago, Trinity United Church of Christ, and a church in Alexandria, Virginia, uh, Alfred Street Baptist Church, and then also my home church in White Plains, New York, Union Baptist Church. Okay, so mm-hmm. when you say you cu- curated the sermons, you didn't write them; you found no. them right. from other places and you brought it together. Right. Um, okay. Right, and then with my home church, what I found most valuable with my home church was the live, collective worship experience, which is a whole body somatic intervention. Yeah. In, in, in the Black church tradition, it is. I've only ever seen it on TV. Right. It's like, they know what they're doing. Right, exactly. Right. <laughs> they in know terms what of, doing. Yeah. Right, in terms of catharsis. And like you said, you have whole body movement, foot stopping, hand clapping, shouting. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a somatic therapeutic intervention. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I just found myself, even just listening to you, the spaciousness I felt, as mm-hmm. you described, making pottery, going mm-hmm. for walks in nature. Mm-hmm. It's like it's like giving breath to your grief. It's giving yeah. space to your grief, giving expression to your grief. And yes. I really believe, and, and obviously you do too, that grief needs expression. Mm-hmm. It needs to be a whole body experience. It needs yes. to be run or walked or yes. screamed or danced or yes. wailed. Yes. But it needs expression and movement. Yes. Or we shrivel, you know. That's right. It's too much for us to bear yes. when we keep it in. Um, and I love that idea. You know, a friend of mine, she's a bereavement therapist also, has just trained in nature therapy. Yes. I just can't wait to see what she does. It's, because I think of nature as my co-therapist. Yeah. It's integral to... That. Yeah, nature is integral to every single one of my sessions. So my approach is structured, pulling together all of the things that science says works and that my personal experience says works. And the encounters with nature, mindful encounters are an integral part of that. Literally every single session with me, there is... 15 minutes of a mindful encounter in nature. And so 
part of, like you said, with the grief needing to be expressed, it needs to be danced, it needs to be walked, it needs to be run, it needs to be molded outside of a box. It's the box, you know, it makes me think about, again, that dreadful room. The box is too containing, it's too restricting for grief. And so every single session, we're going to be out of the box. Um, and so that's a part of it. And, it. and clients who work with me know that that's what they're signing up for. They have a home uh, park space that I identify based on their home location or work location. So if they are working with me and my practice is completely virtual, if they're working with me and having their sessions, you know, maybe during a work break, I'm going to identify the green space near their work space. If they're home, as I was on leave, I'm going to identify a main green space. And that's where we will do daily sessions and weekly sessions. And we start out with daily sessions, because that was another thing about traumatic grief, was that I felt uh, what was missing was a more intensive um, intervention on the front end, that the traditional once a week hour just didn't work when you're experiencing that much pain. And so in, in my approach, the first week, we actually work together every day for five days. And then the second week, we work together four days, and we titrate down to once a week. And would that be, would you see people soon after their loss or a few months down the road? A range. So I've had um, clients contact me um, before uh, a death, before an imminent death. And then we worked right after. Um, and I've also worked with individuals who have come to see me, you know, maybe three, six months after the loss, uh, a year after the loss. So it's, yeah, the full range. Whenever they come, though, because my practice focuses on traumatic grief, they are in a traumatic stress response state. And that can be a couple of weeks a few months or a year or a few years. And so in that way, the intervention, the initial intervention is the same with respect to the intensive work. And every session involves 15 minutes of nature therapy. It sounds amazing. And I'd say you're brilliant at what you do. Mm -hmm. um, you have that lived experience and I think being able to empathize is really vital in these situations. It is. It's another thing that was missing, I think, from my very nice therapist. I didn't, I mean, they didn't disclose if they did have a, ser a similar experience of traumatic grief or traumatic loss. But if they did, I, I never knew. I think you know when you're being understood. Mm-hmm when someone really understands what you're going through. I mm -hmm. think we get a sense of that. Mm -hmm. yeah. And we get a sense of when they don't as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Niasha, I wanted to ask you, you serve only Black people in your community. Yeah. Tell me more about that, why that's yeah. important to you. Yeah. I think it's, it's a, another 
dimension of an, of an integrated purpose-driven life, particularly as it comes to my professional identity. Um, I became a counseling psychologist to serve the Black American community. Uh, you know, you have a lot of hoops that you have to jump through, but I never lost sight of the original reason I became a psychologist. Um, my research focuses exclusively on the Black American community, cultural practices, coping strategies, and subjective well-being. That's been my life walk. And so um, it was just natural that the application of that conceptual knowledge goes towards serving the Black American community. My practice is boutique. And by boutique, that means I work with no more than one new client a month. And so over the course of the year, I may work with six to 10 individuals. Mm. One of the things that we know from the literature, from meta-analyses is that counselor, client, cultural match maps on to better therapeutic outcomes, particularly with what we call racial minority clients in the States. So not as relevant for white clients, but for ethnic minoritized clients in the States, really important. And it maps onto better outcomes in the form of um, treatment persistence and compliance, typically. Hmm. Last I checked, Black psychologists comprise 2% of all psychologists in the United States. And so we're very small in numbers. Then if you take that and then think about how many of us may be working in the academy, such as myself before and not seeing clients, you have a very small pool. And we also have marriage and family therapists and licensed professional counselors and uh, licensed clinical social workers. But altogether, I think in each of those areas, black clinicians make up no more than 4% of the total population. And so you're talking about a population that has high need and a strong desire for uh, culturally similar clinician with a small pool. And so it was just really important for me to have everything in my professional life integrated in that way. So the research that I actually conduct informs the therapeutic work that I do and vice versa. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That sounds amazing and what a service. Um, I wanted to ask you, race does matter. You know, the color of our skin does matter in therapy. Our sexuality matters, our gender identity matters. Um, would you speak a little bit about what needs the African-American community might have that the white community doesn't have? Um, I get it to a degree, a lot of people listening won't get it and then others will get it. But for the sake of those of us who don't fully understand and can't fully understand, especially from just a few minutes in a podcast, but would you give us an idea of why that cultural identification could be so important 
for someone needing bereavement support? Yeah. Um, the first thing that comes to mind is that when we're bereaved, our cognitive um, capabilities are, are severely taxed. And so if you're talking about having to engage in cross-cultural communication while you're also bereaved, you're adding more work to the bereaved. That's more labor. There are things, and again, it depends on, it depends on the extent to which the Black client subjectively considers race a central part of their identity and salient. And we, so I, I want to be careful not to make an assumption that that is the case for everyone who reaches out yeah. for therapy because it isn't. But for the client for whom that is the case, and again, from a population standpoint, that's going to be the majority of Black Americans. For the client for whom that is the case, that's just one less burden you've removed from a profoundly burdensome journey. Um, there are cultural references that come up in the sessions. It's, it's hard to explain. It's a little difficult to explain because culture, when it's in full operation, is habitual and subconscious and implicit. So it's a little difficult even to, to lift up and out for, you know, to extract um, you know, how it ends up facilitating the, the therapeutic alliance and rapport. But I, like I said, the first thing that comes to mind are, are, are what seem like small cultural references, but they're a big part of the lived experience that the client maybe just doesn't need to under explain. It doesn't feel like they need to explain. Um, and then the, yeah. It's similar to somebody going to a nice therapist, but who doesn't understand grief. Right. You know, I need you to get this and I right. need to not have the burden of having to explain to you what my grief is like or my trauma is like. I want you to understand that right. at the minimum. Right. And as you said, you you can feel, you can tell through nonverbal communication, we know that the majority of our communication actually is nonverbal and you can tell and you can feel yeah. when someone gets it and gets you and gets this walk mm -hmm. it's and it's it can be just a slight glance upwards and you they're accessing a part of their brain that's like what does she actually mean right there and right in a very split second but yes you know, I've had that feeling of sitting in analysis and going oh my god she really doesn't understand yes what I'm talking about yes yes you, you see know. that 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 millisecond of a of a blank stare <laughs> right you're like yeah or, or that accessing a part of going do I know anything about that anywhere yes. in my brain right now yes 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 that's right mm -hmm. yeah so it's very important that um that the practice be a space where I'm walking the talk. Because again, as, as you mentioned at the beginning, I am also a full-time professor. And so it just was, it was important to my, you know, for my personal values and that there's integrity in the work that I do. And is race ever an issue with the bereavement itself? You know? Um... Oh, yeah, absolutely. 
you know, maybe has some mistreated in hospital or they absolutely. died because of racial issues. Oh, absolutely. Mm. I mean, it, and it showed up, I think, in my own experience with um, how I felt treated by the medical system and the ways that I had to advocate and fight and let them know that you're not going to railroad me or my family. You're going to give us the very best um, assumptions that I think. White system? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in terms of the providers. Now we were at Hopkins Hospital and the, I mean, the patients were diverse, but the majority of the providers were white. So it comes up there in terms of um, what they think, again, your baby does and does not need and fights that you have to have. And it's, it's difficult to tell because again, you're also bereaved and there's so much going on and you can't really sift through. But, you know, I mean, you, again, if you're a learned person, you know about medical apartheid, you know about medical racism. And so absolutely for every client, medical racism is a part of their grief story. And it's a part of their story that, that I know. Mm -hmm. I, and I can just imagine because I know from in our system here, you know, from working with white people in a white system, our primarily white system, you know, the without the racial component, mm -hmm. there can be profound damage done mm -hmm. from the look or if someone is dismissive or makes an assumption and just to bring on the layer of race onto that, Absolutely. onto someone who's already traumatized um, living in, in the society we live in. I can just imagine the extra layers of damage that can be done. Absolutely, absolutely. Sorry that you experienced that. Absolutely, yeah, thank you, thank you. Right, the last thing that you need is a, a therapist who, who thinks it's their job then to challenge your cognitive distortions uh, around what happened and reality test and gaslight. Um, you're already in a space where you feel crazy, as people say, you know, when you're bereaved, um, you just don't need to worry about a therapist getting this and or, or holding that part of your grief journey narrative, because you're suspicious that the therapist may not get it. And so you just don't even share it. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes it's so intangible. Mm -hmm. You know, these microaggressions, there can be nonverbal, mm -hmm. but we, we can feel them like undercurrents. They can be felt like undercurrents. And like you say, in grief, we often feel like we are on the brink of going crazy mm -hmm. and scatter a little bit of microaggressions and racism in there as well. And stick somebody in front of a therapist who hasn't a clue um, yeah. of the black experience and it could be profoundly damaging yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. wow Niasha I could speak with you all morning I know it's really nice to speak with you and you hear well. your experience and your wisdom you know thank you You're wisdom so counseling wisdom. yes <laughs> wisdom counseling yeah wow. um I really appreciate you taking the time at this 
awful hour of the morning. The sun is rising. Nice. Yeah. Thank you so much for the invitation. I really appreciate it. I love your podcast. I actually use your podcast as part of my therapeutic work. With, yeah, because another part of the structured intervention is psychoeducation and storytelling is so powerful. And your podcast is one of the ones that gets assigned specific episodes. Mm-hmm. Oh, so you knew of me oh, before yes. I had contacted you. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Right. Yes, yes. I've been following the podcast since the beginning. And I remember one of the most profound and impactful episodes was one that related to how unresolved grief impacts the body and medical difficulty and challenges. And it's, it's, an, it's an episode that I assign to all clients. I wonder, is that with Madeline? I think so. Um, yeah, and she talks about ulcerative colitis. And yes, that's right. That's oh it. My, so that's my friend who's just done her degree in nature therapy. Oh, yeah. Look at that. Look at yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot, there's such a wealth of experience and information. And um, yeah, I'm just so grateful to everybody who, who speaks with me about their perspective of grief. Yeah, and yeah. like, it's so important for me that, you know, I called it shapes of grief to represent a variety of different losses, even though it is primarily about bereavement. But it's really important to me that people looking can find an episode that resonates with them either because the speaker looks like them or the speakers Mm -hmm. had a similar experience to them or Mm -hmm. something that will with will reach people and touch people yeah it's a wonderful service and and it matters the work that you do has an impact thank you have i you probably don't know this but i've just produced a grief education program it's on the website shapesofgrief.com okay. and it's explicit teaching and grief education. Oh, um, okay. So it's, it's designed for those counselors and psychotherapists who are very nice, but, <laughs> but, but poorly those... trained <laughs> <laughs> and not, but, and poorly trained. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like, I suppose my current mission is to help counselors and psychotherapists realize that training is really important and it can make the difference and not only is it important it's essential when it comes to grief particularly when trauma is involved yes and like I said earlier most people who come looking for support it's because there's an element of trauma involved Mm -hmm. Um, and I've designed it specifically for people to be able to identify that you know mm-hmm. to to start to know what they don't know that's yeah. the problem right. we don't know what we don't know until somebody shows us so um yeah take a look let me know I absolutely will I mm-hmm. absolutely will mm-hmm. I also share your podcast with my students I teach a, a upper level counseling psychology course at the college and so my students are all now familiar oh, with yes, yes yeah yeah that's right that's mm-hmm. lovely to know that there's a bunch of students walking around Baltimore listening mm-hmm. to that's right. a little Irish accent. That's right. That's uh, right. Hello, Niasha students. And, <laughs> that's uh, right. Hope that's you're right. To this. I hope yeah. you'll share this as well. This has I been will. a powerful conversation. Thank you. And uh, it will be very enlightening for many people listening. Yes. Thank you. Enjoy your day. And lovely to meet you. And I'm you sure we'll, we'll see each other on Instagram. Indeed, indeed. (laughs) Baltimore Grief on Instagram.
Yes, follow Niasha. Baltimore Grief. Yeah. And All right. Instagram. Are you on Twitter, Dr. Amina? I'm on Twitter. Is Dr. Amina or Womanist Psych on Twitter? Womanist Psych. Yes. Okay. All right. Lovely to meet you. You as well, Liz. Have a beautiful day. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Shapes of Grief. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical or psychological advice. And if your grief is making you unwell, please do see your healthcare provider. Once again, please consider supporting the podcast by donating on shapesofgrief.com or becoming a patron on patreon.com. I rely on your support to keep going. The music is performed by Baca Beyond, especially for the Shapes of Grief podcast. Until the next time, from Miles Gleason, take really good care.